Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. I just started watching this Hulu original show uh, featuring a black woman who used to be a prosecutor and she used to be a public defender and now she's a big time corporate lawyer. And um, our man Michael Ely plays what he always plays, somebody that's so complicated. But he's a man who's innocent. But he tells the parole board that he did the crime so he could get paroled. And I wonder, because she said, you know, this happens too frequently. People plead to things just so they can get out. But how many people are actually innocent who never get out? Well, this man wrote a book, University Distinguished Professor of Law and Criminal Justice at Northeastern University. He's the author of Bard, Why the Innocent Can't Get Out of Prison. Let me welcome to the show, Daniel Medwed. Hi. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Honorable Madam Hunter. It's a privilege to be here. I receive you. (laughs) I receive you. Cena's here as well. Um, I'm really interested in this because, as we know, I mean, Michelle Alexander wrote The New Jim Crow, but I think it's The New Slavery because I keep looking at that butt clause in the 13th Amendment, but for, and I'm like, why would you put a butt clause as a lawyer? Why would you put a butt clause unless you mean to fill it? Unless you exactly. mean to fill it. So it's the it's slavery. It's slavery. It's slavery. It's all a legacy of slavery. You're exactly right. So that black folk are disproportionately incarcerated, mostly because we're disproportionately targeted, mostly because this is the way the system was designed to police black bodies. I'm not surprised uh, that innocent people can't get out of prison. But what was the impetus for you writing this book? Well, yeah. So back in the day, I ran a small innocence project at Brooklyn Law School, where my students and I would investigate and litigate claims of innocence by New York prisoners, most of whom were Black men, people of color, who were there wrongfully. And time and time again, Karen, we'd find lots of evidence of innocence. You know, we'd find evidence pointing to the true suspect. We'd find a recantation from a trial witness who said they were lying, and the prosecutors pushed them. We'd present it to a judge, and the judge wouldn't listen. Judge wouldn't hear. And our clients would stay in prison for years and years and years until eventually we'd find a way out. And that led me to pursue research in this area, because we all understand, I think, why this happens. You alluded to it before, especially for Black people, over-policing, being targeted by the police, being drawn into the system, they're going to be put in prison at a higher rate. But, but, and eyewitnesses make mistakes and all these things. But why does it say, take so darn long to get them out? And that's what the book's all about. Um, Clay Kane uh, on the Clay Kane show, the show that comes on right before I do, he has an award winning series called Exonerated that he does on the air where he interviews people who've gotten out. And some people have been in jail 40 years, 30 years. And I think about the enormous loss of life, but also the loss of dignity, because even if you're able to be exonerated, no one can restore the damage done behind bars where you literally are dehumanized on an everyday basis. What is it that you found? Give us a couple of stories from Bard that would shock or maybe not shock our audience, but that shocked you. Well, shocked me. I mean, so many of them are shocking, but here's one. I'll give you this one. So in Salt Lake City in 2000, Salt Lake City, Utah doesn't have a very large black population. Fair to really? say, right? Wait, yeah, hold on. Surprising. Let, me, let me Google I don't, search this. <laughs> let's fact it's, check this. We'll, we'll fact check it, okay? I don't want to go out on a limb here, guys. Make sure I'm, I'm all right. Get the researchers on it. Okay, we'll get the okay. researchers on it. Fact yeah. check. So somebody, apparently a black man, stole $50 from someone at a 7-Eleven in Salt Lake City. And a woman says, you know, it's a black guy who did it. 
there's no suspect for a couple years. And the description is young black man in his 20s. Couple years later, this witness, oh. white woman, is walking down the street and she sees a black man, 47 years old, Harry Miller, who was in town to visit his brother. And she says, that's the guy. Jesus. And then oh the, clerk, the clerk at the 7-Eleven says, oh, yeah, I remember that guy. He used to come into the store three <gasps> years ago. Yes. What year was this? So the, it, the crime happened in 2003. If I recall, the, I, the identification was around, I'm sorry, the crime was 2000. The identification was like 2002, 2003. Okay, so we're talking not the next day. But get this, you guys are going to be amazed. This is shocking. So Harry Miller says, well, I was in Louisiana that day. I'm from Louisiana. And you know what? I know I was in Louisiana because I had had a stroke and I oh, was yo. in my bed. And he had a nurse who could say that he was in Louisiana the day before that robbery. Okay. So Harry Miller, but the prosecutors are like, no, you must have gotten on a plane, gone from Louisiana to Salt Lake City, robbed someone of $50 and got back to Louisiana that night because he was seen that night or that next morning. Okay. Crazy, right? Wait, so uh, this is what makes... All right. Yeah, I know. Wait. So our fact checkers, which is me, uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, 2.6% black, right? Uh, wow. And I know black don't crack, but he's in his 40s. Originally, yeah. it was a young, young person that young she said. Person. Young person. Yeah. And, and then the, the store clerk uh, also corro- corroborated well, her story. Yeah, but, right, because you think about, I mean, he's going to remember you know, one of his three black patrons from two or three years before. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? The whole, we all know about cross-racial misidentifications, how, you know, white people can identify people of color very well. I mean, it happens all the time in these cases. So this, this feels like a Because we all look alike. Because we all, you what? know, what's interesting to me about even that, Daniel Medwood, that we yeah. would even give credence to people who would say folk that come from a continent that, literally were raped into having quadrones, octorones, you know, yes. like raped into having the gradation of, of the spectrum that we all look alike. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's absurd. Weird. Well, it's also because, you know, white people just look at themselves, you know, they're not, they're not paying attention and, and, you know, it's terrible. You know, to be fair, a lot of, and Karen, this is interesting. A lot of the data suggests that people from other groups aren't good at looking at other groups as well, right? Like that black people aren't great at identifying white people. I don't know if that's true. We're, but, we're lying on those because we just want um, to to make y'all feel the way we feel for real. Yeah. I mean, so but yeah. let me let me ask you, because I'm just curious. Yeah. This has nothing okay. to do with your book, because I'm always okay. curious about because race is a made up construct where people sit. You know, when they do you identify as being white, Daniel? I, I do. I identify as being white. Uh, you know, I'm sorry to say, especially studying criminal justice, because you don't have history, to. You don't well, have you to. Know what? <laughs> you, I don't have, you have a no, choice. You have a choice. I, to not to not to identify as white, yeah, or yeah, you know what I do? How about this, Karen? I identify with you as human. I love that, okay. but I'm asking something are- because white is a political is a political and and socioeconomic uh, socioeconomic construct, right? And its right. main main purpose is to keep a caste system in this country, right? So Absolutely. so whiteness has extra- expanded and contracted over time, you know, to let different people in when the numbers dwindled, right? So now we're in yeah. this fever pitch of, oh, by 20, whatever, it's going to be majority, minority. But you made up this construct that forces you to always be <laughs> in this position of fear of not being around because it doesn't exist anyway. And I'm, I'm assuming something. I'm assuming you might be of the Jewish faith or maybe of the Jewish culture. I am culture. of the Jewish faith. 
Exactly. So if you were white, why didn't they let people in during World War II? I mean, and that's a great question, right? So I, I think I identify as white simply because I acknowledge that the experience of Black Americans is different from my experience. In the sense, I'm Jewish, I, I'm in a religious or ethnic minority, but when I'm walking down the street, the police aren't following me, right? When I walk into a store to buy a shirt, I'm not being followed. So that's why I'd say I'm white, you know, because I can see people who are from ethnic minorities will say, well, I'm Jewish, I'm this, you know, I, I have a tough experience too. Well, you know what? I don't have a tough com experience compared to what you deal with okay. every single day. I so I acknowledge that. it. So that, you know, it's a construct. I agree with you, but, but I think I identify with it because the world treats me that way. You know, mm -hmm. I benefit from white privilege every second. And so I could easily say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not white or I'm, I'm Jewish or I'm different, but you know, I'm treat. I'm given all those benefits, so until I might as well not. own it. Until Tiki until Torch I'm carrying a uh, khaki yes. pant, wearing people say you won't replace them because if you could replace them, then you're not them. That's, a, That's so. A I'm just point. I'm just challenging yeah. that because the more people reject the notion of race, the quicker it'll go away as a power tool because it's a power you know, tool. You're saying something incredibly important, and I need to think about it more because I okay. think you're right. Race is a construct, and race is a way of dividing us. We are we are we are 99.9% .9 the same, right? Genetically, it's just it's just nothing. It's a tiny thing that separates us. But but we use this difference to really create a fissure between all of us. Um, I'm going to think about that. You've got me thinking, as I knew you would. All right, I have one more Daniel, question. No, I know you want to jump okay. in, but I, I talked oh, today with right. a, a uh, skin yeah. specialist uh, doctor, and we were she was saying that the, what makes a person how we identify people who are quote unquote white is whether they burn and turn red or whether they tan. I, oh, I look at you. I, tan. I think you I'm tan. I think you tan. I'm dark, right? I know. I'm, I'm looking I'm at tan. you. I'm like, you tan, yeah. brother. You tan. I am on. Exactly. Okay. Uh, so, all right. You know, that's all right. Now I'll move point. on. I'm going to move on. Go ahead, Cena. I'm sorry. Just... Uh, okay. Well, I got, I'm just, I went to New York Law School, by the way. And so. All right. To Tribeca. Law. There we yeah. go. So uh, this, I the first thing that came to my mind is what defense attorney was not able to convince a jury that this man it was not a magician of some kind how did yeah. this what? i'm so glad you brought that up so yeah here here's where we were right so harry miller is identified as the guy who bumped off 50 bucks from the 7-eleven three years before case goes to trial and you're exactly right wouldn't a decent defense lawyer get a good alibi defense right really easy to do it just get all these people from louisiana to say they saw harry miller the lawyer didn't do it all the lawyer did was put Harry Miller on the stand yeah. to say he was home in Louisiana. He didn't call anybody from that town. So Harry public Miller's defender? convicted. Public def uh, I have to check that. I believe it was a public defender. Not 100% sure. Fact check, right? So guess what? He sends to five years to life for $50. And the case is challenged on the grounds you pointed out ineffective assistance of counsel. Why did this attorney you know, not call an alibi defense? And one of the things I talk about in the book, Honorable Madam Hunter, is how deferential the courts are to bad decisions by lawyers. Oh. And so the court said, you know what? This was a strategic decision. The lawyer didn't feel the need to put on an alibi defense. You know, it wouldn't really have made a difference. Eventually, it ends well. 2004, the prosecutors dropped the case, you know, for reasons that we don't really know. It's kind of mysterious. Wait, did he go to prison? I, he didn't went to prison. 
He was in prison for, I think, about four and a half years. Are you kidding oh. me for 50? Yes. So hold on, hold okay. on, hold on. Dollars, it wasn't Daniel. He- I, I know. Daniel Medwood, the book is called Bard, Why the Innocent Can't Get Out of Prison. We're going to answer that question in a second. But $50 is a misdemeanor bench warrant, you know, you? You know your own reconnaissance, <laughs> pay a fine. <laughs> Why? $50? You got How? the, the, the okay. fundamentalist Church of Latter Day Saints in Utah over there running like having those, raping those kids sister wife having like, yeah you know go ahead let's go let's well, go look you're a black man in Louisiana accused of stealing fifty bucks five years to life you know Karen you talked about the legacy of slavery I mean you know Utah has a pretty harsh system and this is a case that really reflects it. So, you know, Karen, earlier you talked about, and I thought this was a really interesting point you made about, you can't really compensate people who go through this, right? What is, what's it like to be dehumanized the way you described it and to live in a cage? Well, Utah tried to compensate him. Guess what? He, they gave him 124 grand for, for his suffering for four and a half wow. years. That's basically what he ended up with, a little over 124 grand. You know, I mean, I mean the, the book is full of stories like this, a lot of them involving people of color, often black men, not always. Um, but but a lot of it is about how hard it is to overturn these cases after the police have targeted you, after prosecutors have come after you, after a jury has rendered a guilty verdict. And once you have that decision in place, it just takes so much to get people to look at the case anew. It's really alarming. So why the innocent can't get out of prison is the um, subtitle. Why can't they? You know, I think here's the reason in a nutshell. How many times have you heard about how people get out on technicalities, how appeals are endless, how the guilty and the innocent, you know, there are all these like escape hatches from the prison cell. We've all heard that, right? It's a lie. It's a myth. Once you're convicted, that presumption of innocence that we like to talk about is gone. It's replaced by a presumption of guilt, which hardens over time. And all of these appeals that people talk about being endless, that's just not true. You have one right to appeal your case. It's not even in the Constitution. It's something that the states grant you. And when you appeal your case, you're limited to what happened at trial. You can't bring in new evidence. You can't even bring up issues generally, Karen, that you didn't object to at trial, that your lawyer didn't object to at trial. Now, there are a couple other remedies, including a famous one called habeas corpus, where you can go in and try to do all these things. But usually these aren't great vehicles for innocence that are fact-based claims, like I didn't do it. Instead, they're better vehicles for presenting constitutional arguments that somehow you were deprived of your rights. So basically, the system isn't well designed to course correct when there's that fundamental error that an innocent person's been convicted. And this wouldn't be so bad if we got it right at trial, right? I mean, you know, it would be wouldn't be great. But we know that we don't get it right at trial, especially for people of color. Oh, eight six six eight zero one eight two five five. I um, you know, we start off the show talking, of course, about Hurricane Ian that is, you know, running a, a swath through Florida, and I was 
talking about, you know, maybe people should start thinking about moving to places that aren't hit with a hurricane every few years. And maybe, you know, the great migration for black folk was really important to, to run away from the tyranny of the South and Jim Crow. Um, Not that the conditions in the North, I I, I hate the subtlety of the racism in the North uh, because it gives you a false sense of security. But is there a place, you know, and and we have to change America. Like we can't keep running away from trauma and, and just, terror we can't keep running but in your opinion you know both of you both with the law school is there a way for there to be fundamental changes in our laws that will protect everybody oh gosh that's 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 the key question do we need to change the laws or do we need to change the people the views of the people who are applying the laws And and my take on this, and I'm curious what you think, it's about perception and about people. You know, we still live in this segregated society. How can Harry Miller, 47-year-old Black man, be misidentified as a 20-something-year-old kid from three years before? Like, it doesn't make sense, right? Um, and, And part of it's because, not to pick on Salt Lake City, it's kind of an easy target, but you know, people aren't accustomed to interacting with people from different races, different communities. And if we just got to know each other a little bit more and, and we weren't othering each other, like that's the other, that's somebody else, I think that would go a long way. Because I think empathy is in short supply. And if judges and prosecutors and police could empathize and identify with the people that are ensnared in the criminal justice system, that might do more than just changing the language of the law. I don't well, know. You, we could change uh-huh. the law. What well, do you, you would have to, think? Daniel, have to see them as people, right? People right. in this country, but people yeah. self-segregate. So it's a willful. They are running. When my parent, my father um, bought our first home in East Orange, the neighborhood was white. Within the year, it was not. There was one lady left, Miss Bucky, on the corner. That was it. Oh, no. And and so people run away from any potential to have this kind of experience. In Salt Lake City, Utah, I've asked this of people who live there. Why do you live there? And they, if they're being honest, they chose to live there because of the complexion of the demographics, right? Because it's only 2.5% black and other, you know, and they get to live their utopia in their minds that they think this is safe. It's all of these things, right? Um, and as a result, we have the, the world that we have, the country that we have. So I don't know how we fix that. Daniel. I, you know, the, yeah, sorry. Oh, uh, go ahead, please. No, no, please. I, I think you're on to it, Karen. That how do we fix that? You know, busing didn't work, right? To try to force integration in the schools. We know how that turned out. You know, I'm here in Boston. Look at our history of of segregation and the busing crisis and what happened in the '70s. So I don't think it has to be forced. But you know, it, it's stuff like this. It's people talking and and hearing these stories and learning about what people like Harry Miller experienced. Because Harry Miller, he's 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 one of us. Right. I mean, ninety nine point nine percent of our genetic material, as I said, is the same. Like instead of seeing him as different, instead of thinking that this couldn't happen to me, it's going to happen to someone else. Recognizing it could happen to you if, in fact, you were in a different body. Right. Like because we live in a society that is segregated and discriminates specifically against people of color. If we could just talk about this and and tackle it head on. I think that would go a long way, but maybe I, I'm being naive. It's the only way I can see forward, but I, I guess I don't have as much faith in us yeah. to talk. I don't know. I've been talking my whole life. So Karen's been talking yeah. for a long time too, you know, Karen's, so it's I like, know, and you are like it. crying into the wilderness. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. you know, we're speaking into the way you do a little bit, but uh, I was thinking the plumbing of our democracy 
does work, but we just have to put people in those positions That's it. that are able. So if we're able to change the plumbing, like the, the federal sentencing guidelines, those are a exactly. huge deal, right? People talk about those. There's always a debate about them. Is there are there ways that we can change the plumbing on what happens post conviction yes. that enable these? You said that's not even in the Constitution to have an appeal. Exactly. I think are there elements of this where we can change the flow of how information is reviewed, whether yeah. it's governmental or enabled, like access to data in different ways? What in your research, what are some of the things that could happen structurally to yeah. how cases are reviewed? Great. That's a fabulous question. So two thoughts on that. First, I offer a lot of sort of micro level reforms, you know, change the rules of appellate procedure, for instance, so that you can look at issues where there wasn't an objection at trial. It's called the preservation requirement. You have to preserve the issue, you know, like canning fruit to eat later. You have to preserve a, preserve a legal issue if you're going to review it on appeal. And I'll say that's ridiculous. Like if there's an error that happened at trial, appellate judges should look at it. Right. So some of my suggestions are as you suggest, about the structure of the process. But then my second set of suggestions, I'm curious what you guys think about this, are, are bigger picture, sort of macro level. And there are two of them I'd love to float to see what, what you guys think. So the first is about prosecutors. You know, so American prosecutors are a big part of the problem. And our honorable Madam Hunter, you alluded to this before, right? That 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 prosecutors will and police will over-police certain neighborhoods, often majority minority neighborhoods, and so on. So if we could elect progressive prosecutors, we've had this movement in the last eight years, ever since the murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson and the rise of Black Lives Matter, we have seen, and I, I know you've talked about this on your show before, you know, we've seen the rise of people like Kim Fox, who's a prosecutor in Chicago, Rachel Rollins, who's a prosecutor here in Boston, you know, um, a Kim Worthy in Detroit, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, all these prosecutors who are looking at cases through a justice lens, who are aware of racial bias in the system. So structural change, we should all vote. Pay attention to your DA race, your district attorney race. You know, I ask people all the time, do you know the name of the district attorney in the county where you live? A lot of people don't know. We're not paying attention. So mm -hmm. that's a big part of it. I mean, Education. Keith Ellison being uh, in Minnesota yeah. when Huge. Derek Chauvin uh, choked the life out of of George Floyd. Yes, I don't know if he would have been. I don't even know if he would have been brought up on charges uh, if there were another attorney, district attorney in that position. Karen, that is the perfect example, because like, let's juxtapose what happened with George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd versus the murder of Michael Brown. OK, just a few years before in Missouri, not Minnesota. So in Minnesota, Keith Ellison, they take it seriously. They bring charges. They get a conviction in Missouri. The D.A. sort of slow rolls it doesn't present a very thorough case at the, the um, indictment phase at the grand jury. And there's not even an indictment. The cop doesn't even get indicted. There's not even a trial. And that DA really makes a difference. Mm -hmm. You're exactly right. You know, these are both cases where unarmed black men were killed. There were there were murder cases. But in one case, Derek Chauvin in Minnesota, he faced justice. He he went before a jury and we all heard his case in Ferguson, Missouri. We didn't even get there because of how the DA handled it. So that's a big part of it. And if people paid attention to these races and really had, were educated about it, that would help. Mm -hmm. Second thing, and I'd love to get your take on this, just so what they do this in England and England has a separate commission. It's called the Criminal Cases Review Commission, 
which is separate from the courts. And it's separate, essentially it's an independent executive agency that is funded to look at these cases and investigate these cases. And if they think it's a credible claim of innocence, they refer it to the courts and basically give their blessing and say, look guys, this is an unsafe verdict, it's called in the UK, look at it. Only one state in the US does this, North Carolina. They developed this commission in North Carolina in 2006. It's not perfect. They've only freed 15 people in the last, you know, 16 years, but you know, there's a benefit to this. It's a group that has money and expertise and and the explicit objective of looking at innocence cases mm. and then vetting those cases and referring them to the courts. So you're not putting it in the hands of prosecutors who might be committed to the to the conviction or even the direct hands of judges who might be former prosecutors or just skeptical uh, or cynical based on their experiences. I don't know. What, what's your sort of reaction to that? Just out of curiosity. I like that. I, I think I we, should, that. we yeah. should definitely we should do. Uh, you should not be able to uh, police a community that you're not a part of. I think that exactly. that's important. I think you should not be able to prosecute a community or judge a community that you're not a part of. I think that should be a prerequisite before you can pass judgment, even sitting on the bench, because I think far too often, even that when judges uh, have the latitude to be able to, uh, you know, and all of the deals being made there, yes. they made somebody, um, Nitra actually in Nubia said four years for $50 that cost the state $30,000 a year to house him. Hmm. Even yeah. that, you know that that's part of again slavery because you're yes. putting you're incarcerating him so that you can extract his labor for cheap. Yes, many cities yes. and towns in this country are built on the prison industrial complex, and yes. so you know that black body now becomes valuable if you're in places like Louisiana where you literally can pick cotton in yes. jail. Oh yeah. So yeah, this is uh, this. You don't this, get minimum wage. No. <laughs> you know, I, right. I would love yeah. to see if, you know, when we're coming up on these DAs all the time, we're talking about them. Let's be able to publicly see what cases they are trying and yes. how many convictions and who they're. There should be just a website I could exactly. go to to see. We need to make these DAs famous because that's the only way people are going to start caring about knowing who they are and voting for the ones we want. Daniel, is I, there a place a like that? One. Does a place like that exist? No, it doesn't. And we're, you know, actually a couple of us are trying to do this. We're trying to work on, I have a bunch of colleagues in this area and we're trying to set up a registry that would list, I mean, first of all, we're thinking about like shaming by naming the, the, the bad yeah. prosecutors, you know, the prosecutors yes. who do, yes. do that, do the, the bad dirty stuff. dozen. Let's go. Exactly. Just, but just based on public information, right. Cases that are been documented by courts. We're not talking about water cooler rumors about who's a good DA and who's not just public information. But your point about lauding the good ones, a lot of that is just like what we do in the trenches, you know, like my, my you know, a DA gets in trouble and, you know, I'll, I'll try to get a, new, uh, a journalist to, you know, put in a good word about her and explain why she's not being a soft on crime. She's being good on justice. Right. You know, a lot of it is sort of that just like fighting it out in the media. But I love your idea of like a website or a place to give people information about the good prosecutors who are out there. Think how brave it is for a prosecutor to not come out there and be tough on crime. 
how brave it is. Rachel Rollins, I, I'm, I, I'm, she's one, she's one of my heroes here in Boston. You know, the police came after her before she even became a prosecutor. She was elected, and before she became a prosecutor, a group called the National Police Association, which may not be a real association, I don't even know, they filed an ethics complaint against her, saying that she was engaged in reckless disregard of state law, because she planned not to prosecute petty cases. Because she looked at all these petty cases often that were going against people of color in Boston. And she thought, we don't need to incarcerate these folks, you know, that we can spend our money on, on other things. And they came after her and after and after. So I agree with you. I think that's a really good idea. All right. So we're going to challenge you, uh, Daniel Medwed, because uh, your book barred why the innocent uh, can't get out of prison. Brilliant. But in order for this to have the impact, I think you should do what what needs to be done let's go let's get the registry and then you come back on the show when you've built it and let's let's go and then some of our listeners could add to it because we have a lot of lawyers and people listening that i would love that i think you're inspiring me so that that's a deal if i get this up and running you're the first one i call all right Bet. All right. Smith, you heard it. You heard it. That's a thank deal. You. Listen, um, thank you for doing the work. Thank you for this. And I thank you for the work that you're going to do as well, because, uh, you know, this is this is what is required. We have to do it. We have to get it done. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to the Karen Hunter show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.